Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with John Lukomnik, the founder of Sinclair Capital. John chairs the audit committee of the Van Eck Mutual Funds, is a core member of the Funston Advisory Team, and serves on the Deloitte Audit Quality Advisory Committee. He has a long track record in corporate governance, having served as the Deputy Controller of the New York City Pension Funds, was a Managing Director of a Top 10 Hedge Fund, and served as a Director for Public and Private Companies, Nonprofit Corporations, and Litigation Trusts. His new book, co-authored with Professor James Hawley, is Moving Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory, Investing That Matters. He is also the co-author of What They Do With Your Money, How the Financial System Fails Us, and How to Fix It, and The New Capitalist. In this podcast, we discuss the focus of his latest book, Moving Beyond MTP, the different historic stages of corporate governance going all the way back to the Dutch East India Company in 1602, and we discuss about the new focus on beta activism, ESG, stakeholder capitalism, corporate governance and private companies, and much, much more. If you like this show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com, and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. John, it is so good to have you in this podcast. I've been following your writings and your opinions on governance for a long time, and it's great to have one of the leading thought leaders on this topic. Thank you very much for coming in, and welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. It's my pleasure. I guess that's what happens when you uh, get old and you're not yet senile and you stay active, (laughs) is you manage to accumulate a lot of writings. All right. No, this is great. So let's start a little bit about you. Let's talk about your personal story. I usually start with kind of the origin story. Where were you born and where did you grow up? And then we move from there all the way into what you're doing now. But let's start from the beginning. (laughs) I was born in New York. I grew up in the Bronx. Um, I went to school at Columbia and I was a journalist. In fact, I was a sports writer. Um, but I wound up being press secretary to the then uh, New York City Comptroller, Jay Golden, longtime city controller, um, at a fascinating time, which we may get into. But um, in the 1980s, when the Council of Institutional Investors was formed and a number of other things, and one of the responsibilities of the city controller is basically to manage the assets of the city's pension funds. And so I was very involved in that at a uh, extremely interesting period of time. Wow. And from there, I, uh, I did work. Um, I wound up running the pension funds at one point, um, two administrations later under other officers, and then went to work as an asset manager briefly. Um, and for the last 20 years, I've had a consulting practice, and I spent 10 years running the IRC Institute Um, which commissioned about 80 um, academic and practitioner research papers around ESG and capital markets issues because as an investor, which is how I identify as an institutional investor, um, you realize that it's all sort of grounded in the capital markets. And if it doesn't relate to that, it doesn't tend to stick very well. 
There's a lot, obviously, in all that you just uh, mentioned. But let's start by the uh, New York City's uh, Comptroller's Office. Obviously, it's been a very active program or pension fund system, very active in governance. And for the past at least, what should I say, seven, eight years, they've had the board accountability projects. But you, you can maybe talk from the previous era. You probably lived through the time in which pension funds started becoming more active in trying to get the voice out. You mentioned the Council of Institutional Investors in 1985, which was created a little bit to counter the power of imperial CEOs and get the voice out there from institutional investors. Can you talk a little bit about that time and the shift in governance uh, between investors and managements? Sure. You know what? Let me, let me put this in context because um, as you, you know, Evan, we have a new book out, um, Movie Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory. And while it is a finance book, it goes fairly deeply into corporate governance as a finance tool. And so um, we did some research on the history of corporate governance. So um, let me run through 400 years in four minutes. Um, I, I would say that most people would date the origin of corporate governance to the origin of the corporation, which the most modern, most people would say that the uh, forerunner of today's corporation was the Dutch East India Company, mm -hmm. um, founded in 1602. And things change over 400 years, but the establishment of the executive as the locus of power really was set then. Um, they used an interesting combination of slavery, piracy, intimidation, alignment with the government um, to do that. And there were the normal criticisms, criticisms of executive compensation. People said that the insider's fortunes grew in the matter of mushrooms in the dark. Uh, there was capital structure issues. People said to retain another person's money for longer than it was intended it was a form of tyranny. And even about return of capital to shareholders, people complained about a lack of dividends. So they finally gave them dividends. But then they decided to pay the dividends in nutmeg rather than in money, right? So, and we should say that it was the first listed public corporation, right? That's why it was it the first public eternally live corporation. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the interesting things is we now think of corporations as a right. Mm -hmm. Anyone can establish a corporation; it's permanently live. And the typical corporate charter nowadays says something like to do anything that's legally allowable in the state of Delaware, California, wherever. Um, they used to be need royal grants or legislative grants. They were time-limited and they had a purpose. That's what changed with the Dutch East India Corporation. But that locus of power, the executive, stayed, and it basically stayed up until, let's say, the 1980s. Um, there are some famous professor quotes, Miles Mace saying that boards are ornaments on a Christmas tree. Famous management guru, Peter Drucker, saying the one thing all boards have in common is that they do not work. And let me tell you how... And he said that as late as 1993, right? So, And I'm going to go to 2002. Okay. Um, I was on the creditors committee that was reforming WorldCom mm. at the time, the world's largest fraud and bankruptcy. And I was one of three people on the CEO search committee that ultimately selected Mike Capellas. And we interviewed someone else. And remember, this was a fraud, a bankruptcy. There was a federal monitor embedded. And I asked this 
um, well-known corporate executive who had flown down on a private plane from the company that he was working for. Um, you know, what's your idea for corporate governance? This was 2002. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, are you going to have an independent board, empower the board? How do we reinstall trust? And his comment was, I'll be damned if I have a board look over my shoulder at my company, right? This was 2002. Now, I have to say, I vetoed him. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually glad I did because without naming names, he went on to run a different Fortune 500 company badly and got fired fairly quickly. So, um, But you, this started by asking, we're now into the 1980s, and things began to change. And they began to change for two reasons. First, in a capitalist society, whoever has power, has capital, has power. And MPT being invented, modern portfolio theory, being invented in 1952, started a desire for, in effect, prepackaged diversification products. So things like mutual funds. Um, and that started the institutionalization of assets. And by the 1980s, you had ERISA in 1974. No one knew it, but asset managers and asset owners had grown big. So they had power. They just didn't recognize it yet. And then you had what I call the dystopian science fiction universe of green male, white knights, poison pills, deadhead poison pills, Pac-Man defenses, goodbye kisses. And what it was, was green male, which for your listeners who are younger, it was, um, I used to say the capital market version of blackmail, but now we can call it the capital market version of a cyber ransom attack. Um, And someone would, buy a large amount of stock and threaten a hostile takeover and say to the CEO, but I'll go away if you pay me a premium. And this happened over and over. James Goldsmith, Green Mill, $93 million from Goodyear. Saul Steinberg hit Walt Disney for $60 million. By the way, he also did Quaker State and the Penn Central Railroad. In one year, and in April 1984, Green Mills extracted $4 billion from U.S. public companies, and those aren't inflation-adjusted. So the CEOs had paid everyone off, and so they were back ensconced in power. The green millers were happy and rich, and the only people that suffered were the shareholders. And um, a that led to Jess Unruh, the big daddy of California mm-hmm. politics, who actually knew how to use money in politics really well. Um, my boss at the time, Jay Golden, and Roland Mackleton, who was the New York State, excuse me, the New Jersey treasurer, forming the Council of Institutional Investors. And all of a sudden, we woke up to the fact that we had power. I remember um, one of the payoffs, Ross Perot had been a board member of General mm. Motors. Yep. General Motors paid him $700 million to go away. Remember, this is in the 80s. $700 million in the 80s to go away. Well, the council, newly formed, wanted to meet with Roger Smith, who was the CEO of um, General Motors at the time. And he sort of pushed us off because he was still in the imperial CEO world. And Jay said very publicly, well, if this chairman of General Motors won't meet with us, perhaps the next one will. And within two weeks, Roger caved and, in fact, came to a CII meeting. So that was sort of stage one, was power became a mess. That's why it was a really interesting time to be a staffer to Jay. 
One thing I always tell students is is even back in the middle there with Adam Smith and you know he wrote his book and he talked about you know negligence and profusion. So corporate governance has been an issue as you said from the very beginning and for example in the most recent 2016 statement by the CEOs and investors you know Warren Buffett and JP Dime you know that they made a statement of what is corporate governance and they said that there is disagreement around what is corporate governance in, today right and we've been at it for 400 500 years so i find it's interesting that uh, this is still being debated and it's still being heavily discussed but it's interesting because at least since the 80s you lived through this movement of pension funds of getting power shifting from the executive side into the investor side and that that is still evolving i mean i think the numbers are that institutional investors manage about you know 90% of the equity market uh, and retail investors only 8% when 1950s with Markowitz it was exactly the opposite 90% retail versus 8% institutionals or something like that right absolutely correct um and by the way i don't think there's they think there's a disagreement about what corporate governance is corporate governance is a series of structures policies procedures information flows that determine how a corporation is governed i think there's a disagreement about what optimal corporate governance right. is right um and it's not surprising that there is because the reality is the markets and the world change and evolve mm-hmm. and what is considered normal today may be considered abnormal tomorrow i mean just you know slavery was an integral part of capitalism in the 17th century right it's outlawed around the world today and in the instances where modern slavery exists it's abhorred by most responsible hopefully all responsible investors and corporations. Um, so I think what, what's happened is they are corrected and it is changing. And it's changing largely for the reason you said, capital markets are changing. If you are a diversified investor, you have a different view of what you want from your company than if you have a single asset. because most people don't invest by I'm going to pick this stock they invest S&P 500 right. or some other index fund um and that's really been a change and that means that you know 75 to 94% of your return is due to the systematic nature of the markets it's not due to your stock selection or your portfolio construction the problem is that MPT uses diversification to deal with risk and that only works for idiosyncratic risk of company x executing better than company y or being in a particular situation in in systematic risk which is usually called by caused by risk to the systems of the real world so systemic risk manifests as systematic risk in the marketplace um all the correlations go to one Mm-hmm. and you see that over and over in the global financial crisis you know it was hard to find a place to escape during the initial phase of the pandemic it was hard to find a place to escape and coming out of the pandemic um it was hard to find a place that didn't work like correlations work on the upside as well as the downside so what investors have started to do is to try to think in what we call stage 3 
corporate governance, and this really has sort of developed since the financial crisis and with the understanding of the financial risk that climate change poses, how do we deal with the real-world environmental, social, and financial systems to reduce systemic risk so that it won't manifest as systematic risk in the marketplace, or at least mitigate it. And that is what has changed, because if you are a CEO or a corporate board member, you are used to thinking about materiality for your investors as what does the outside world do to us, right? If you're Intel, you need clean water to create fabrication plants, so you care about water quality. But if you are a diversified investor, you also care about what does your company do to the systemic risks of the world. So you might care about what Intel does with water after it uses it, not just on the input side. This is, And so I think what the book does that's different is it says there is finance theory here that affects what a corporation should do and what is material. This is not a series of social preferences. First, we deal with apartheid, and then we deal with climate change and gender diversity. But rather, those are sequential manifestations of attempts by investors to reduce systematic risk of the capital markets in a way that's impossible through mere trading and portfolio construction. So it's really interesting kind of the way you wove through the different phases. And, and I think you, you call this uh, stage three beta activism. You know, maybe you should explain that. that sure. I'm sorry. I, I lapsed into jargon, which is not a good thing to do. Um, so capital market theory says that there is beta, which is the risk and return of the marketplace. It is a mathematical constant set at 1.0. So if you're in the equity market, for instance, something that is more volatile than the market, say a small cap tech stock, generally has a beta of more than one, and something which is less volatile, a large cap utility, will have a beta of less than one. The problem with that is it's self-referential. If the market's down 10, you want a low beta or preferably an inversely correlated beta portfolio. If it's up, you want a high beta portfolio. Alpha, by contrast, is idiosyncratic. It's generally thought of as managerial skill. And while there is a formula for it, let's just leave it at that for a moment as opposed to the overall return of the marketplace. Um, as an aside, I will tell you that having hired hundreds of managers in my lifetime, inevitably when they outperform, it's alpha, their skill. And when they underperform, it's just risk being manifest. Right? Right. But I use the phrase beta activism in this stage three of corporate governance to address things like investor initiatives to make mining safer throughout the industry or climate change or to increase gender diversity, things which are designed to affect the overall return of the market or a large part of the market, as opposed to alpha activism, which is the commonplace thing that we all know that people like you know Carl Icahn or Bill Ackman practice at individual companies designed to affect just that individual company. So... What is the takeaway from your book in terms of reforming or moving beyond MPT? How are you positioning the new wave of governance and push from investors in what should be optimal uh, 
for the market and for companies and for boards to think about? Well, this is not a modest book. We are trying to redefine what investing is. Mm-hmm. When people think of investing, they normally think of you know somebody doing deep analysis and sitting at a Bloomberg terminal and trading electronic dots. And we are saying that stewardship for the benefit of the marketplace as a whole, private sector standard setting of the type of thing that Larry Fink tried to do by saying people should, uh, companies should disclose using TCFD and SASB, um, policy input such as what investors have done around the various COP conferences to try and um, get global commitments on um, climate change. Those are all parts of trying to deal with this systematic risk issue that we can't deal with through mere diversification. Um, And so it's a very much broader concept that reunites investing from being sort of hermetically sealed math of extracting the best possible portfolio from the then extent market to a more holistic and long-term vision of how do we improve the risk return of the market overall. Hmm. So are you optimistic from the marketplace, at least the institutional investor side, that changes in ESG are going to improve the overall governance of companies? And is this something that you think also is going to impact shareholder activism, meaning, you know, the hedge funds and and trying to get individual companies to do certain things? Well, I think you've already seen that. I'll I'll give you two two comments. Engine one, Mm -hmm. um, where they went after a major integrated oil company um, around climate change. I think you've seen um, a lot of activism around um, not allowing lobbying for climate denial purposes and there are five more um, agreements just announced two days ago uh, prior to this taping. Um, and I also think you're going to see a difference in how shareholder resolutions themselves are crafted. So one of the really interesting shareholder resolutions, I thought, um, and disclosure on the board of this entity, um, the shareholder commons at Paul Reisman did something on antimicrobial resistance at Yum Brands, Yum being the parent of KFC and Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. And Nordea has done a great job on antimicrobial resistance, changing the regulations in India. But this one was here in the U.S. and it was at a specific company. So you say, how can it be beta activism? Well, in addition to the normal, we want a sustainability report about antimicrobial resistance and things. Yum Brands agreed to look at what would be a more optimal use of antibiotics throughout the entire food supply and animal husbandry chain. Um, And to make that report publicly available and to talk about what was harming the possibility of achieving that. And so it broadened from an individual company to a supply chain in an industry. That is the other hallmark of this that I think is really interesting. We tend to think about things either individually at a company level or globally. You have federal legislation. A lot of the most interesting attempts at activism to affect systems are now happening at an industry level. And we don't talk about that as often, but it makes perfect sense 
because the industries, much like SASB's taxonomy, get affected by the same systemic risks. And so um, the Mining and Tailings Dam initiative that happened after the dam collapse in Brazil that killed 259 people and cut the value of Valet stock by $18 billion um, has been endorsed by the mining companies. And they now have new stand safety standards and disclosures and transparency because the entire industry is facing the same thing. And so I think the resolutions are going to be geared more towards this systemic industry effect. The coalitions that investor build will be more industry-oriented. And I have seen a huge take-up in this idea of investors taking on the issues of systemic risk just in the last two years. And, and regulators even are getting on board. So, for instance, in the UK, the FRC's Stewardship 2020 Code specifically says that asset managers should disclose how they are dealing with systemic risk issues. It's really interesting to me, this discussion, because it ties into a very core evolution of governance. And, you know, ESG is now at the front and center of a lot of uh, board's discussions. But also it ties into another issue, which is this debate that uh, was sparked in 2019 on the purpose of the corporation, shifting away from uh, Milton Friedman, you know, shareholder focus into what some refer as the stakeholder capitalism. And, and maybe there's a third layer there that started in 2010 with public benefit corporations or benefit corporations, which also is an attempt to uh, think about other stakeholders beyond shareholders, but they all try to you know, target the same thing. How do you think about these uh, trends? And, you know, at, at some level, they've existed for a long time, but now they've become mainstream, right? There was a lot of social pressure in the past. There was a lot of environmental pressure in the past by some actors or entities, but now it's become core to governance. And, and, and this is what the era is about. So I'm really interested to hear your opinion on this, on these trends. Well, I would just point out that everyone forgets the end part of Milton Friedman's statement, which mm -hmm. was according to the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. And we actually go into that at some length in the book. And so the question is, what are the rules of the game? I would also say that um, I think the person who really started, jump-started this, is uh, my late friend Lynn Stout, who wrote The Shareholder Value Myth. And Lynn and I used to have great arguments, but the sort of arguments you have among intellectual friends um, – she would say, these are shareholders, and I would say, we're share owners. Um, she would say, you're not owners, that this whole um, shareholder value thing is a myth, which is the title of our best-selling book. I got to the same place as Lynn, even though I am a share owner advocate, because I was always taught that the we own the residual claims of the corporation. After all, the suppliers, workers, everyone else had been paid. So effectively, you needed to satisfy your stakeholders to get to reward shareholders. And we were at the end of the line, and it works that way, and I'm fine with it. The problem is that somehow in the 2000s, 1990s, whenever, we, we figured out how to be both first and last in line, right? But pay us, and we get the residuals. Um and that doesn't work. I tend to look at this from the point of view of the investor. As I said, 
the 75 to 94% of your return is tied to the overall health of the marketplace. That requires healthy environmental, social, and financial systems and a healthy capital market to translate those opportunities to investment opportunities. And so that means that you have to care about what I call both outside in and inside out materiality. We talked about that briefly. Um, you have to care about what companies are doing to the health of those systems, which is what most people would think of as stakeholder capitalism. That said, I still think the governance of a company needs a final decision, and that is shareholders. But to me, it is shareholders or share owners thinking about it as how do we maximize that residual benefit and we have to take care of everyone else to do that. And so I've always thought it's a bit of a false dichotomy that if, in fact, you are thinking long-term, thinking about how to maximize residual benefit, you're going to be thinking about how to create value um, in a way that is societally positive. Alex Edmonds at the London Business School has a wonderful book out that talks about shareholder value being a subset of societal value. Mm -hmm. And I think that jibes with this idea of we're at the back of the line. We get a disproportionate share because we take a disproportionate amount of the risk, but we're at the back of the line. And that's how I try to square those circles. You know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned him in the UK because I feel that uh, the UK and Europe have been very much at the forefront of many of these social and environmental issues, uh, there is, at some level, different conceptions of, of governance uh, that are cultural. You know, you, you look at Germany, for example, with co-determination, you know, employees on boards. How do you see uh, the evolution? And, and I think you were a co-founder of ICGN, right? So you know a lot about how perceptions of international governance versus U.S. Do you think this is converging or or still there, there's a big difference in terms of outlooks of what are the expectations from investors and what is the role of uh, management teams and others? I don't think there's any one answer. You're, you're, it, it, they're very... Um, it's very macro. Yeah, it's well, it's 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 both micro and macro. Interestingly, so for instance, let's just take something everyone in the U.S. knows about: say on pay votes. Mm -hmm. Those came from Europe, right? Um, let's take something that approved is now, by the way, Dodd Frank, two thousand ten, in the U.S. Right, um, but they they started in Europe. Um, I think that the robustness of the U.S. Um, takeover market and some U.S. discipline around capital structure has is now making its way to Europe and to Asia. Um, you see the Japanese, for instance, who famously had Koretsu organizations, which were sort of um, self-referring, co-owned entities that, that managed for growth as opposed to for value creation. Um, you see those being challenged by Japanese corporate governance codes now because they understand they're just not very efficient in, in working in the real world, in a, in a globalized world. 
Um, so I think that the idea flows go both ways, but there are local um, preferences. I mean, we talk about materiality and value, but those tend to stem from values being more and more accepted, and then all of a sudden they become material. And so I remember I was working as a consultant for the International Finance Corporation in like 2007, and I was in some emerging markets in Asia, and they didn't want to hear about corporate governance, but the E and the S, they cared about tremendously because their view was these are trusts for long-term generations. Interesting. Um, so I think you're going to see certain ideas go back and forth. Um, certain American ideas get adopted elsewhere and other ideas adopted here. The one thing I would say is different right now as we record this is not to get into electoral politics, but if you look at the ESG trends globally, including the United States, the capital flows, um, the literature, the academia, we had four years of a regulatory administration that was designed to tamp it down. Mm -hmm. And so we are currently in this incredible catch-up, which is quite honestly confusing and chaotic. Um, so many new regulations being proposed, so many new ideas being proposed. Um, it's a little bit as if we didn't have the normal teenage years that Europe had to grow up and figure out what we wanted to be. It was we went from being nine years old to being 19 overnight. And, you know, how do we grow into this body? I don't know. I'm, I'm 12 inches taller and 100 pounds bigger. And, you know, what do I, where do my feet go? And I think that's how a lot of people are feeling about ESG in the United States right now. And, you know, I realize I lumped everything in the U.S. Uh, in, in, in a very, um, you know, broad fashion because I live here in San Francisco in the, in the Bay Area. And, you know, there is a strong founder approach to uh, managing companies and a company staying private and not wanting to have the influence of institutional investors, certainly not activist investors. I talk a lot about the difference of Silicon Valley versus Wall Street. And this has become an issue when a lot of the tech companies in Silicon Valley have gone public with dual class shares, which by the way is sort of at the beginning of CII, you know, the one share, one vote was a founding principle. So nothing is new, uh, but, but there is this distinction. So how do you think, and have you had any experience with the idea of governance for startups versus you know governance for the large companies with large institutional investors i think there is a different approach right people who do governance from institutional investors have a view of what is good governance but when you talk to founders and startup executives here in silicon valley it's very different and and at some level there has been a lot of uh, problems right with these founders when they've gone haywire and 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 we've seen cases like you know we work and theranos and and all these different scandals that are coming out here but any opinion on that and and the effect of private versus public uh companies in governance can we do a whole other podcast on this yeah. <laughs> I mean, we certainly is, could i mean it, it, it's I, very I like, specific yeah it's very specific i mean so you have Founder syndrome, which is like the WeWork thing. And I mean, my favorite example isn't a 
tech company, but Viacom, um, where Sumner Redstone had dual class shares. And when asked what his succession planning issue was, was his answer was, I don't plan to ever die. Now, I don't think that's really good succession planning. And in fact, what happened to Viacom proves it. Um, I think that there's different risk desires and risk appetites for small, fast-growing, um, quite honestly, um, cash flow burning companies than there are for larger, mature companies. What is int- it's interesting is if you divide this corporate governance into what we called stage one corporate governance, right? How do the investors get treated by the company? That is what the dispute is about, right? Do you have multiple shares? Do you have one share, one vote? Does the founder stay on forever? Um, you know, how, quite honestly, how good are your internal controls and accounting systems? Because a lot of these companies, some are ready to go public, some aren't. I've actually been hired to help some companies uh, prepare to go public. The stage three stuff, though, is interesting. The what are you doing to the social fabric? How are you affecting the systems? And I think that is just now starting to become an issue. If you are successful as a Silicon Valley company, you mentioned the ICGN. They just had an entire day programming on the governance of information tech companies. Mm-hmm. Right? You see Facebook having, in effect, a high court. Mm-hmm. You see Twitter deciding who can post on it and who can't, and that becomes national news. Um, you see the heads, the CEOs of various companies being hauled before Congress to be asked from two totally different viewpoints, but to be asked, what what is your company doing to our society? And so I think that the main thrust of what we discussed doesn't change. With these companies, the um, the obligation of the company to the systems. The what d- does change is what enables the company itself um, to thrive at what stage. Do you need to be small, nimble, agile, um, where decision making needs to be dominated by a single visionary individual? And how do you know if you have that single individual and how long should that last for? Or are you larger where no matter how smart you are, no one individual is smarter than everyone in the room? And so I think there's a life cycle. There's a duration. There's a are you public or private? There's a are you cash flow positive or negative? What? How well do the investors understand the risk of what they're investing in? There, those are all the specific issues in the outside-in governance. In the inside-out governance, I think we're sort of facing the same thing that you are, even if you're a large public company. Mm-hmm. I, I heard recently something from one of these tech entrepreneurs that that I, I think I'll, I'll mention now to get your reaction. Because to me, it was like a big statement. He said, we are living in three types of capitalisms. There is the woke capitalism from the West, the authoritarian capitalism from China, and the crypto capitalism 
which is the new kind of, and to me, like, you know, coming from governance, it's a very strong statement, but what is your first reaction to this division? I would broaden it a little bit. I had a fascinating discussion with a couple of professors about two years ago who said the general Western um, post-World War II Bretton Woods type philosophy was crumbling. You see authoritarian um, regimes around the world, all the things that, that your technologist friend said are a way to try to make sense of what is the dominant economic paradigm today. Mm -hmm. So I think there's elements of truth in what he or she said um, about authoritarian um, remnants of that sort of post-World War II globalization, liberalization economy. Um, I don't think we know what we're involving to yet. And that does make it a confusing and hard time for many uh, board members and CEOs, a frightening time for a lot of the public, um, an interesting time intellectually, although, you know, that's sort of the Confucian uh, curse on me, live in interesting times. So I, I, I think we know that what we had from 1945 till the global financial crisis is not as all-encompassing, all-agreed-upon consensus and dominant. I don't know what it's evolving to. Yeah. Um, so that's his way of dividing it up. Um, I think there are probably others. Um, but the idea that there is not one dominant paradigm anymore, I would agree with. Yeah. Well, certainly there is a geopolitical risk on what's going on between you know China and the US and the West. And that's something that is to be worried about. Uh, and, and crypto is just uh, really interesting from a different perspective on decentralizing a lot of the economy, a lot of the, you know, institutions, and, and we'll see. I mean... It, well, I, since you live in San Francisco, yeah. I, used to, I used to use the phrase, it was a, it was a little bit... Um, Condescending. Uh, superficial, <laughs> okay. but that San Francisco was attacking New York. Yeah. That New York as the banking and investment mm -hmm. capital, you know, clearly things like PayPal are a very efficient payment system, crypto... Um, technology is the new data gold, however you want to define it. And, and I do think there is an element of what drives the economy. Um, so I am not being totally dismissive of, uh, of that question or your friend's answer. I am just saying that I think he's seeing it from a particular point of view that is increasingly important, mm -hmm. but maybe not all important yet. Yeah, no, I, I agree, I agree. All right, well, you know, I know that we could be talking for hours on governance, but ask you a few rapid fire questions. What are the one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Um, well, first book I'd have to say is uh, Fifth Business by Robertson Davies. Robertson Davies is a Canadian novelist and what I loved about the book was that it made me appreciate the miraculous in everyday life. And I often forget 
to do that. Mm -hmm. But every once in a while, I remember to do that, and therefore, I thank it. Um, I'm going to modify your question a little and take media other than uh, books. Um, How about a play, As You Like It by William Shakespeare? Mm -hmm. Um, It's obviously not a book, but God, what writing and what wit. Um, I wish that wit were present in my everyday life. Um, And I've always been attracted to theater for many years. I chaired the board of a New York City, of New York Classical, which is a off-Broadway, not-for-profit theater company. Um, And then other media, I would just say lots and lots of music from Armstrong and Ellington to the Beatles and Aretha, Delvis Costello and Bonnie Raitt. Bob Marley's Steely Dead and Springsteen to Fantastic Negrito, speaking of Bay Area artists. Mm-hmm. And anyone who knows me knows I always have music playing, especially when I'm working. You should be um, honored. I turned it off so that you wouldn't hear it in the podcast. Maybe it would have been nice, right, in the background there. Well, if we are on this media tour, what about a movie? I'm not a huge movie fan uh-huh. um, because I spend – the idea of being locked up in um, a darkened movie theater um, is overwhelming to me. And I find that movies increasingly are um, about how big the explosions are and how good the CGI is. So I do like a number of films from the golden era of movies and everything from Howard Hawks comedies, um, you know, up uh, up through movies today. Um, Although you could be watching in your living room with a glass of wine. Could be, and I tend to watch in pre-pandemic times on airplanes. Right. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to pass on movies. Okay. Uh, second question, who are your mentors and what did you learn from them? Let me give you two, one personal and one professional. Um, personal was... My sister. Uh, my sister is 10 years old, and I'm, unfortunately, she died rather young from multiple myeloma. And she was a force of nature and absolutely passionate about social justice. As I said, she's 10 years older than I am. She was at the 1963 Martin Luther King March on Washington. Mm. Um, she became a well-known public health doctor, and she was one of the first to um, concentrate on what's become known as the social determinants of health which unfortunately we've all learned a lot more about due to the pandemic. And so um, living up to her ideals in a very different field of um, what is ethical and socially useful is important. Um, Professionally, I I never really thought about it, but I was thinking about it when we were having our conversation. I'd have to say Jay Golden, the longtime New York City controller. not for the specific substance, but when I was serving as staff for him, um, first I was exposed to pensions and investing in corporate governance. But more than that, Jay was both incredibly demanding and incredibly fair. He had the sixth sense for knowing if you'd done all your work. So if you were supposed to ask 20 questions and give him a briefing, and you only asked 19, the briefing would come back marked up saying, what about? And he'd inevitably know the question you'd ask. But if he did all your work, and then there were things that weren't knowable, He'd accept it. And so um, I think the level of work and detail and professionalism that he demanded um, was very formative. That's great. 
Um, and are there any quotes that you think of often or you live your life by? Two. And it's funny you should ask because um, the one that I always – that sticks out is it's better to be approximately right than precisely wrong. <laughs> um, and I one. always thought that that was attributable to John Maynard Keynes. But apparently it's not. It's some unknown 18th century English author. But it's a pretty good philosophy. Um, and the other, I said I was a music fan. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always said I wanted to be a nice person. And Michael Franti and Spearhead had an album out um, this winter in which the lead song's chorus was work hard and be nice to people. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a pretty good philosophy to me. That, that does sound like a good philosophy. Um, and is there an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? I love to cook. Mm. Um, I am, a, I think, a good cook. I cook dinner virtually every night. Um, as far as an absurd thing, um, we have a stuffed animal, okay. a fennec fox, you know, those little foxes with big ears, on the windowsill in our kitchen. And since I love to cook, um, we got him for giving a donation to the Bronx Zoo. It's not like I went out and <laughs> right? If it's give a donation to the zoo, we'll send you a stuffed animal. Um, but since I cook every night, I see him in the kitchen. So the absurd thing I do is I say hello to him. <laughs> now, I'm not crazy. So far, he hasn't said hello back. But <laughs> it, it sounds like, what is that movie with Tom Hanks and, and had the, the ball that he would say? Yeah, um, uh, th yeah the volleyball. Wilson. Wilson. Because um, that was the manufacturer's name. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, which living person do you most admire? This is going to sound like a cop-out, but I'm going to say my wife. <laughs> um, she's a pediatrician in the Bronx, and just anyone who knows her would tell you she's just genuinely one of the nicest people in the world. That's great. No, that's, uh, that, that's great to hear. One last question, and uh, I'm just curious, how are things in New York with COVID and, and what are your expectations as things come back? And do you see us getting back into the motion after the summer? Uh, and, and, you know, what do you think is going to happen? I live in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. Um, and I think New York, you know, sometimes we anchor to initial um, visions. And New York, obviously was hard hit in the initial phases of COVID. In some ways, that enabled us to deal with everything since then pretty well. Um, in my neighborhood, which is residential and commercial, but not office buildings, um, I think things will be very good. Um, I've now had my second shot. People are out on the streets. Um, the restaurants are reopening, all that. I do think I was in Midtown to get my shot, um, and that is a bit more barren. Um, short term, I think there will be pain in the commercial real estate market and amongst all the businesses that rely on tourists and people coming into the city, Central Business District, Midtown, and Downtown um, to work. Long term, um, there have been a bunch of studies about what causes cities to grow. And one of the factors is availability of space in real estate. And New York has reinvented itself so much that I would not be surprised that if 10 years, New York, or five years, New York were buzzing more than it ever did before, but in ways that 
you know, are not exactly the same. Well, it's interesting you say that because there's been a lot of talk on the exodus from San Francisco and California from tech companies and going to places like Austin, Texas or Seattle or Miami. And I've also read that there's a lot of expats, so, so-called from New York and and San Francisco and the Bay Area going to these places, attracted by lower tax rates, attracted by maybe friendlier business in, uh, you know, uh, cities. Uh, do you think that's going to be a trend, a little bit prompted by COVID, where you have more mobility so you can go to live to cheaper regions? Because it's obviously very expensive to you know live in, in New York or San Francisco. Well, by definition, supply and demand will eventually kick in on that, although that's a um eventual and uneven prospect mm-hmm. um having said that i think there's always been some of that um you saw when connecticut instituted a personal income tax a couple of hedge funds moving out of connecticut um what san francisco and new york have though is that density and um cultural vitality um they are it's not an accident that they are port cities on the coast you get um immigrant populations which revitalize and bring new styles and ideas um and so i am not being dr pangloss this is not we're not going to have issues we will have issues um as i said i think midtown and downtown will have particular issues um the Flight from New York was largely from Manhattan. Mm-hmm. The Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, and Staten Island economies are actually doing better. Um, and I, I think we will just reinvent ourselves. People are talking about, and you've actually seen tech firms moving into New York. It's space. Amazon's taking a lot of space. Apple's taking a lot of space. Google's taking a lot of space. Um, so we'll do okay. It'll be painful, but we've lived through this pain, and I think there's a, you know, I am um, a New York booster. As I said, I was born here. I grew up in the Bronx. I went to college at Columbia. Um, And so as much as I travel the globe, um, I choose to live here because when I come back from someplace and I go out on the street, I feel like a cartoon energy monster that just soaks up the energy from New York. That's and great. that you can't replicate with a lower tax rate. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's also a great way to, to finish our conversation. John, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me and uh, talk about governance. And uh, hopefully we will meet soon. You know, if you come out here in the Bay Area or if I go to New York when things resume. Uh, but I look forward to seeing more of your uh, books and articles and opinions on governance. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.